Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, sociology professor and New York Times contributing opinion writer. He's a prolific and best-selling author whose newest book, which he co-wrote with Mark Favreau, is titled Unequal, A Story of America. This book marks Dr. Dyson's first foray into young adult literature. Unequal breaks down the Black struggle for equality from Reconstruction to the modern day in America and is a compelling account of the insidious and persistent nature of racism. We discuss the book, Dr. Dyson's choice to write for young people, and so much more. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the show can be found in the link in the show notes. The Stacks Book Club pick for June is White Negroes When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation by Lauren Michelle Jackson. We'll be discussing the book on Wednesday, June 29th with David Dennis Jr. The Stacks is a completely independent podcast made possible by the support of our listeners. I cannot stress enough how I would not be able to make this show each week without the support of the Stacks Pack, which is our incredible bookish community that supports the Stacks over on Patreon. If not for them, there would be no show. So if you like the podcast and want to show your love, plus earn perks like bonus episodes with your favorite readers and authors, shout outs on the show and our monthly virtual book club, plus more, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. And thank you to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Teresa Tebow, Motoko Oshino Matthews, Aya Kaufman, and Raquel Howard. Thank you all so much, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack for supporting this show every single week. And now it's time for my conversation with Michael Eric Dyson. All right, everybody, I am very excited and honored today to be joined by one of the most prolific writers of our day, I would say, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. I'm excited about all the great work that you do and the books you speak about. So I'm honored to join that list. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, we always start here. In about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell the audience about your newest book, Unequal? Yes. Well, Unequal is a book uh, written with my brilliant co-author, Mark Favreau, who's an editor, uh, historian, uh, an elegant writer. And we wanted to... uh, produce a book for teens that would introduce them to some of the most uh, remarkable figures generated uh, in African-American history, 
as we've struggled for equality in America and to take us from basically uh, after Reconstruction uh, down to the present day. So going from, you know, figures uh, like Mary Church Terrell and Thomas Fortune and even before down to uh, Michelle Alexander and uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. So we want to tell a story that's powerful and compelling for young readers, uh, especially in an era when books are being banned and history is being diminished to elevate those stories to the level of eloquent narrative that tells the truth as much as we can tell it about uh, democracy and the struggle for equality of African-Americans in this country. Yeah, I'm so curious about you choosing to write for young people. Mm-hmm. What what was it that sparked you? I mean, you've written 20 plus books. Right. So I'm curious what made you be like, you know what? Now I want to talk to the youth. <laughs> talk to the youngins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I'd always been interested in doing something like that, but, you know, never found the time or the opportunity <laughs> or the occasion. And, I, you know, and a lot of people come up to me, well, you love what you're doing, Dr. Dyson, but you got anything for the young people? You got anything that I can give the teens? What, Which one of your books can be read? Well, maybe the Tupac book or the Jay-Z book, but, you know, I wanted to be more intentional about it. And in joining forces with Mark Favreau, you know, I've found for me a perfect uh, co-author uh, to really reach out to an audience uh, that is, I think, hungry for knowledge. And, and I'm going to be real, too. You know, I love reading some of these uh, teen books and so on because I found a lot of information in them yeah. <laughs> that's, that's relevant and helpful and better written <laughs> than for the old folk. So right. I wanted to join that contingent of writers uh, who have done just that in order to um, to spread knowledge and share messages. And so uh, since I've had this desire for quite some time, the moment came about and I'm ready to uh, to engage. I'm glad that you did. I read my first book by you, uh, which was the Katrina book when I was like mm. 19 or 20. Oh, so wow. I feel like while your work is for adults, I sort right. of was in that young reader age. And, right. you know, I, but I also famously love to read really heavy nonfiction and have since I was a young teenager. So I, I feel like maybe, <laughs> maybe not other teenagers are doing that. Um, but in the introduction, you talk about, you know, folks potentially thinking that this book unequal might victimize kids or, or might make them quote, melt into a puddle of guilt. And it sort of made me think about how education is used. And do you think that previously education has been used as a way to do those things on purpose? And now that, now that it's, you know, sort of white children are feeling those things, all of a sudden that's a problem. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, I mean, look, when we say, well, we're worried about our kids, they ain't worried about black kids. They ain't worried about Latino kids. They're not worried about indigenous kids. Because if you're worried about them, forget what they're reading. Do they have a chance to read? Right. You know, what about the police who are in their schools who are over-policing them? Uh, what about the kids, the indigenous and African-American and Latino kids who are getting kicked out of school at seven and eight and nine and 10 years old? You ain't worried about them. And if you're worried about the psyche of the kids, what about the trauma that young kids of color endure by listening to Tucker Carlson or people who listen to Tucker Carlson and mm-hmm. say things about them and draw conclusions about them? So there's been a host of traumas, a bevy 
of befuddling assaults upon the vulnerable psyches of these kids, and yet they keep coming, and yet they keep rising, and yet we keep pushing them forward. So I'm saying, you know, white people going around talking about snowflakes. Ah, yeah, snowflakes. <laughs> you can't take anything. Thou doth protest too much. Mm-hmm. Thou doth snowflake too much. Because even written into the law in Florida from Ron DeSantis is the language that makes our children uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like literally the comfort of white kids is the litmus test for what is durable history. And so, you know, I think that all along, kids have been dealing with a lot of interesting things. And isn't it interesting, too, not to be snarky, that, you know, white kids seem to have, uh, you know, become soft. Because I remember that they used to be taken to lynchings. They had picnics. And they were celebrated. They didn't go, oh, our kids shouldn't see this. They brought them to the lynching. Right. They brought them to the burning of black people in flesh. So I'm sorry, I don't buy it. It's just a, a revenge. It's, it's a kind of rearticulation of, you know, white supremacist logic and this notion that you're trying to guilt us and stuff. I don't know about you, but if I did something wrong and my people did something wrong and I'm not studying it, I don't have to be guilt laden, but I don't feel like pretty guilt that, that what they did is wrong. And we should be held accountable as human beings for it. So there's no such thing as guilting, you know, white people uh, as a means of history. It's about coming to grips with your responsibility. And again, for the masses of white people who promote a notion of be responsible, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do it. And then when you say, okay, let's hold you responsible. Oh, no, no, no. So I'm sorry, I don't mean to go on, but it's, it's hogwash to me. And uh, I think it's rather disingenuous, to say the least. Yeah. And I think also this notion of, you know, feeling guilt for the group. I think there's been plenty of research and writing about how there's a singularity to whiteness. Um, Because you mentioned, you know, if like someone from your group that you identified with did something, you would want to learn about it, et cetera. And I think that that just shows like your perspective and point of view as a black person in America, whereas white people would say, oh, no, that's someone else. That's a lone wolf. That's, you know, and I think it's just really interesting, um, which is sort of what made me even ask that question, because I do feel like black people, you know, we are guilted and put into these groups and taught all of this history in a way that, you know, can make us sort of feel bad a little bit until we actually right. learn our history, which is clearly what you've done with the book. But the, with with this book, I'm curious who your audience is, because you do start off sort of talking about, you know, people will say that this is going to make you a victim or this is going to make you feel guilty. So it does feel like this book is written more for white children. Was that was that your intent? Well, we certainly want them to read. We ain't we 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 don't want to limit ourselves to any audience. Okay. Right. But but we also are conscious of the fact that especially now, when white kids are being fed a bill of goods that I think is destructive, mm-hmm. that you know we want to pay special attention to them. You know, uh, despite the claims that uh, oh ha, oh, you're after white kids and you want to beat them down. No, we want to pay special attention to the fact that you've been miseducated. We ain't going to avoid the issue. We're coming straight at it. Right. And we're saying that, you know, as Carter G. Wilson said, the miseducation of the Negro, the miseducation of the the young white person in America, because your parents don't think you can handle it because they don't think that you're up to the task. And I teach white kids for a living. So excuse me, they are. Mm 
they're hungry for more. <laughs> then they get pissed at their parents. Why right. didn't I learn this in? Right here they are in college going, why the hell didn't I learn this back in the day? Because your parents were protecting you and guarding you. And the brilliant point you made about black kids and young people being guilted, we're guilted in a different direction. Mm -hmm. You people have been horrible. You commit crime, black on black crime. You do things to each other. I'd like to hear more what you about what you mean in terms of black kids being guilted. But when I think about it, I think about how we are made to feel that we are responsible for the horrors mm -hmm. that have been committed in our name or for the bad things that have been done. And we are responsible for our lack of progress. Our family structure is destructive, is not conducive to being strong. I don't know what, what kind of things that you have in mind. That's what I was thinking about too, like this whole bootstrap mentality. Like I've been thinking obviously a lot about um, higher education with the Joe Biden uh, going back and forth about the loans and that people should, you know, the implication that people should be able to afford these loans and that they shouldn't right. have taken it out and they're being irresponsible. And, you know, we know enough about political coded language to know that that has something to do with welfare queens and has some, you know, it has to do with all right. that kind of language. And I even think like as far back as slavery, I, it wasn't until recently, like maybe in the last five or 10 years that I really stopped mm -hmm. to think about what it meant to be an enslaved person and that those right. people weren't weak. Right? right. That there's right. this idea right. that like black people are inherently lazy or weak because we were slaves, but also we're lazy, even though we did all the work, you know, like, all so, of, all yes. <laughs> so like a lot of that stuff and like that we were skilled laborers, all of those things that were not taught, but it's implied that we weren't because we weren't taught those things. So it, it implies that, you know, people who were enslaved were just lazy uncreative, untalented people who like right. magically figured out how to make, you know, some delicious food or something, right? Or like magically figured <laughs> right. out how to make blues music. Right. right you know, right. so I think that a lot of that is how I think about like being being taught to feel guilty about who you are in school. That was, you know, I think the point. I don't I have to assume it's the point of white supremacy to do to do that to yeah, us. Absolutely right. And when yeah. the shoe was on the other foot you know, they can't take, you know, responsibility right. uh, for actions. And this notion of, hey, I wasn't here. I've heard that so many times. Right. You weren't here when you were born, right. but you're still here. You right. weren't conceived with your consciousness. Somebody else made a decision to bring you here. And you weren't here when the Supreme Court was created. But you keep appealing to its judgment uh, in order to adjudicate claims. You weren't here when the Constitution was written, but you appear appeal to it. So just because you weren't here doesn't mean you don't benefit from something that happened in the past right? and that has present consequences. And so, you know, I hear white people say, my parents are Italian or Jewish or Polish and so on and so forth. If you are white, came to this country, you're making my point even more, right. even better for me. <laughs> yeah. that, that as a white person who wasn't born in this country, came here as an immigrant, you and your family, now y'all have benefits that black people have been here forever, can't enjoy. You're making my point. That is to say, even though you weren't here at the get-go, you still benefit from the social contract that was forged, you know, hundreds of years ago, to which you are now the beneficiary, of which you are now the beneficiary. So right. I think uh, that thing of, I wasn't here, I didn't do it, I'm not guilty, is again, ridiculous. As the great Abraham Yahshua Heschel said, not all are guilty, but all are responsible. Mm. And I think that's the failure of so many white people to take seriously uh, these ideas, which is why we wanted to give them to young people to let them think for themselves. Yeah. 
I'm curious. So you, you mean, you've written about so many things. So I feel like every question I'm going to ask you is be like, you've written about this, but you've written a book <laughs> on black performance. And, and right. when I was reading this book and thinking about, you know, k- children of all different ethnicities and, and racial groups reading it, I was thinking about, you know, ha- what happens to black history when it is reframed or performed for white children or white parents or white the white <laughs> publishing industry like were, were was that something that you were thinking about or navigating at all as you were writing this yeah i mean you have to think about what it will look like when it's received there mm-hmm. but that would be you ask um ray charles or Aretha franklin you know i'm singing a song now, the audience is black, the audience is white, the audience is Latino, the audience could be international, could be local, right? I'm going, I'm going to dig deep into my resources and perform to the height of my ability. And so with writing, obviously, it's a different kind of story. If you're conscious of the audience that you're tailoring uh, your narrative for. Uh, but what we wanted to do is to, to cast those wide a net as possible and catch as many readers as possible because we take seriously young black kids and what they need to, and teens and what they need to learn and what they need to hear. I mean, one of the greatest consequences and the greatest damages of white supremacy is to convince black people they don't need to know their own history. Right. 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 I mean, so you know, well, I'm black. I know that right. No, no, you don't. No, I'm 63 years old. There's stuff I'm still learning. Sure. Like right now that I never heard of. I was like, wow. So so to be convinced that to have an ontological association, to use a horribly big word, but a, a being deep kind of association that to be born black is to know black is itself destructive, mm. you know, because there's so many varieties and qualities and pedigrees and layers of blackness and black identity and black performance that you speak about and so on that are critical, that are necessary, that we don't know, that we should study. The genius of which we can proclaim, but intimate knowledge and acquaintance with that, uh, we have to continue to bone up on, so to speak. So it's not just written for, oh, we're going to write a book and therefore white kids will read it. This is for curious individuals Mm -hmm. of all races and ethnicities who need to know the important contributions of these black people. But your question still stands to what degree does a consciousness of writing for particular audiences shape or misshape, some would say, the narrative. I remember Toni Morrison sitting up on Charlie Rose. I don't write for white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I write books for my people. Now, of course, she knew white. a lot of white people were buying the books. Right. But her point is, I don't ask for white permission, don't have to beg for white forgiveness. Mm-hmm. She, anyway, that's a Dysonian interpolation, but I'm <laughs> <laughs> But I kind of like that, and I'll remember it. Yeah, so that's good. Is, that was good. <laughs> Thank you. Such a brilliant young lady as yourself. So the thing is, is that, look, you know, we're writing for those who are historically starved and for those who are in need of serious information. And look, we live in a nation that is caught in a paradox. On the one hand, they, they I got 15,000 books on Abraham Lincoln. Jesus. A, a bunch of books on Jefferson, the founding fathers, the founding mothers, the founding brothers, the founding sisters. <laughs> New York Times bestseller list. History, 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 nonfiction. Come to black people. Ah, get over it. We're tired of that. Tired? You're clearly not tired of history. That's all you. Even Bill O'Reilly is writing bestseller <laughs> after bestseller, you know, with his co author about some darn 
you know, historical, you know, Abraham Lincoln or something like that. So the thing is, is that we are hungry for history on the one hand, and yet we are full of amnesia and willful neglect of history on the other. When it comes to black people, right. when it comes to our history, then all of a sudden we've had our fill. We don't want any more. Can't you people stop? Wait a minute. I thought you were living for this history. As the great Gore Vidal said, we live in the United States of amnesia. Mm. And in living in the United States of amnesia, there's a there's a deliberate, willful forgetfulness. You know, and I, I always claimed in Barbara Streisand sang the theme song, the anthem to that nation of amnesia. What's too painful to remember, we simply choose to forget. <laughs> it's too painful. Don't want to remember. Too hurtful. Don't want to remember. Too traumatic. Don't want to recall it. But those pains, hurts, and traumas are the very stuff of the history of people that you've created the hurt, pain, and trauma for, mm -hmm. that you don't want to now acknowledge it because to study history is to see yourself reflected in an unpitying frame of the ghastly misdeeds that were committed uh, by so many generations of white people in this nation. So yeah, I understand why they don't want to study history because they've got to study the bones. It's a kind of archeology span of you know, uh, complicity Right. Some of the things that have gone on in this society, ain't no way around that. So, you know, if we writing for them, it's the right to say, own up, fess up, step up, and let's do something about it. Yeah. I think a lot about, you know, the white gaze, you know, as you mentioned, Toni Morrison obviously talked a lot about it. And I think about like your books and, and you've written about so many different parts and facets of black history and black culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're a cultural crit critic and a sociologist and a professor. And like, you're just, I mean, you're like, you wear many hats, which is very mm -hmm. impressive. Mm -hmm. um, but how, how are you, how are you navigating being a black public figure, intellectual professor person, mm -hmm. knowing that so many white people turn to you for answers. I mean, like Chris Harrison turned to you for answers, you know, like you are the guy. Do you <laughs> feel like that shapes how you talk about history? Like, or not, maybe not just mm, you, right, but other right. people who are in similar situations because, you know, Toni Morrison for the genius that she was, she was also writing fiction. And so there right, right, is a right. way for her to get away from some of, some of it that that you can't. So I'm sort of wondering about like being this like black person who for for whatever reason, for probably many reasons has become like the black person that white people can go to for answers, you know? Right, right. Bless you for that. Now it's a brilliant formulation. And of course Toni Morrison besides the ingenious fiction wrote some wrote very powerful narrative. Yes, incredible. And, and incredible. I know you know that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not I'm not saying that to remind I'm saying to remind us that you're absolutely right in terms of that intellectual division of labor, writing fiction. There's a lot more you can play with there. Mm -hmm. And then in nonfiction, more direct, more linear, some would say. And as a result of that, more compelling a reason to, to grapple with these ideas and be conscious of an audience in a way. But if anything, it makes me want to tell more of the truth. Yeah. You know, for some people, it might say, well, go soft on them. Don't, don't, don't be as hard. I'm saying, let's, let's go deeper. If you're listening, and if you're really listening, let me tell you the truth. For instance, I wrote a book called Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon yes. in White America. I still get letters, emails <laughs> from white people saying, oh, my God, this was so tough. This was tough to read. 
And but I'm so glad you wrote it because the 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 telling the truth, the naked vulnerability, the refusal to lie to us, mm. that is important to me. So yeah, it's affected me, but not to mitigate, right? Not to ameliorate in that sense, but to even more honestly and truthfully speak my mind. Because look, I tell people all the time, people of color, black people. BIPOC, however we want to, uh, you know, uh, phrase ourselves, the global majority is what we are, really. So I say, look, you can't out white white people. So don't go in there acting like you white. You ain't white. And if you have white, you ain't all white. But you ain't doing it the same way. Obama is multiracial, but he a black man in America. All right. So the thing is, is that why try to emulate what they already got? Tell your truth. <laughs> yeah. They already got white people. They got more white people that are better than you at being white. You know, with the exception of Clarence Thomas, he's a pretty good white man. <laughs> but I'm sorry. Uh, so the thing is, is that you ain't going to beat them at their game. Get on your game. Do what you do. Tell the truth as you see it. That, that Therefore, if you go into a situation and act like you're white, you're nullifying the very argument for your presence. Because the ostensible reason for your presence is to bring color, to bring difference, to bring perspective. Now, it might line up with what a lot of white people believe. But so that's your freedom and prerogative, but it also brings a different interpretation, a different analysis, a different lens. And so in that sense, you know, I say, let's not give up on the opportunity to tell the truth. I was flying on a plane yesterday from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. and, you know, ran into you know, I'm on the plane and Joe Manchin's on the plane. You mm. know, me and Joe Manchin don't see eye to eye on much. Mm -mm. Sweet guy, very nice guy, professor. This is X, Y, Z. I gave him a copy of Unequal. <laughs> right now, hot off the press before it darn hit the store. And I said, you're going to disagree with a lot of the senators. I said, but I wish you would, uh, you know, at least read it. You know, it's, it's for young people. It's for teens. But you can check it out. We, we, we're doing our work in here. And the thing is, is that, you know, I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to grapple with this. I want to talk to people who don't agree with me. I spend most of my life as a black person in America, as an intellectual, speaking to audiences that are not convinced uh, that right. what I'm saying is true. Right. Right. I'm always in the lion's den, so to speak. Uh, not always, but often. And so it's extremely necessary to engage uh, the inevitable volatility that may be the concomitant, that may be the result, that may be the outcome of what you're trying to do. People's feelings get hurt. They get upset. Uh, their innocence is ripped off from them. Their comfort is removed. That's why I'm against what DeSantis is doing and all these uh, anti-CRT laws. These people don't know the difference between CRT and OPP. They, <laughs> you know, they, they called it 90s hip hop. They don't know. They thought it was the theme song from, from you know, Old Dirty Bastard or something. Right. So the thing is, uh, by the way, Old Dirty Bastard, I'm not uh, being nasty here, y'all. That's uh, a racket. <laughs> so anyway, so, <laughs> so the thing is, is that, you know, when, when you look at all of these bills, they're trying to protect white kids from knowledge, knowledge that what they, the parents, they, the grandparents, they, the great-grandparents, really did. Mm -hmm. The horrible things, you know, voter suppression, that ain't nothing new. They've been doing this from the giddy-up. They've right. been talking negative about black people. And yes, that's part of the study. But it's not to guilt you. It's to inform you. It's not to guilt you, it's to gift you, to gift you with this knowledge. It's a painful gift. It's a powerful gift as well. And if you take it seriously, 
uh, so much good uh, is in the offering. And black people are pretty sweet. Y'all, you know, we, we just real nice people. And the fear of black knowledge for white people mm-hmm. is that black people going to treat them the same way they treated us. That's what it is. The real guilt is a guilty conscience yeah. that, oh, my God. You know, if we were in look at we if we were in control, look at what we did when we were in control. Right. We didn't let them vote. We raped their women. We we castrated their men. We beat their children. We murdered them. We 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 sent them to war. And when they came back, we gave them no benefits that we gave to the white middle class to establish in terms of the GI Bill. Look at the horrible. We 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 terrorized them. We burnt their houses down. And they still hear and they singing Christian songs on Sunday. And when a white guy goes up into a church and murders nine of them before the bodies of the dead are cold, they forgive him. Yeah. So they can't take that love, that power. They can't imagine, oh, my God, because if we treated them the same way they treated us, it would be murder, mayhem and misery. But that ain't who we are. Yeah. And that's not what we do. I think about that a lot. And I think that, you know, this is just my projection. So Mm -hmm. sorry, white people. I think they're really jealous of black people because like all of that horrible stuff. And, you know, to 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 quote maybe one of the most famous poems ever. And still we rise. Right. Like we're still we're still here. Taji had to go to that poem. Taji had to go to that poem. After all you white boys treated me like sugar, honey. Ice tea. And I sat there, thank you, Senator, for the opportunity yeah. to respond to you. And, you know, I wanted to be her anger translator. Mm-hmm. So, so I had bad. to turn it off. I was like, I, oh I can't watch this. Oh I don't my need God. this. I watched every bit of it because I wanted to understand again that you can't you do everything white folk tell you you're supposed to do. Go to Harvard. I went twice. Yeah. Um, you know, she's got more judicial experience than most of y'all who've ever sat on that bench. Right. And she sat there in calm and dignity, mm-hmm. lucidly articulating legal ideas. And even when they thought they had, they had her trapped, you gave a speech at the University of Michigan, quoting Nicole Hannah-Jones. Yes, because I knew that most of the students would see that as a point of reference. And I wanted to have that yeah. as a relevant, oh, she killed him. And then she, she said, but it's not important to my work. Oh, kill him, girl. Kill him. <laughs> because, yes, there is jealousy. You mean we can do all that and they still can dance and sing and perform yeah. and preach and stand up every day and wear their hair the way they do it? Yeah. Yeah, that's who we is. That's yeah. what we do. That's yeah. who we are. So, yes, you're absolutely right. There is a level of envy and jealousy yeah. about our ability to do what we do, despite all the obstacles and impediments we've confronted. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know. 
75 seconds. With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we're back. I want to ask you sort of about the formulation of the book, how you organized it, why you chose to highlight people instead of like time periods or or events or sort of bigger ideas because the book is framed. Every chapter has sort of like a little intro that is that is a story about a person, sometimes an event, but mostly people. And then each chapter itself has a person that sort of starts it and their story is told and combines other history. So I'm wondering why you went with with that direction. Yeah, because people, people are interested in people. Yeah. You got Gossip Magazine, you got OK, <laughs> you got People, you got TMZ, you got The Shade Room, you got, yeah, people are obsessed. What's Kanye doing? What's Kim doing? What they doing? Right now, we didn't want to, you know, presume that we would condescend to that level. But let's meet, you know, it's like Jesus meet the woman at the well. Meet people where they at. Yeah. And where was she at the level of a bucket? Hey, can I have a drink of water? Then we can get into some deep theology and transformative possibility. So I think the lives of interesting, powerful Black people reveal the themes, the events, the stories, the transitions, the historical epics, and the desire to grapple with noble ideals and uplifting aspirations that characterize us as human beings. And so the best thing to do is to talk about Pauline Murray, speak about Mary Church Terrell, to speak about uh, Thomas Fortune, to talk about uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, to talk about Michelle Alexander, to speak about people who were facing housing crises and being, you know, uh, threatened and, uh, you know, to lynch them and to talk about Ida B. Wells Barnett and so on and so forth. Those people have huge stories that connect to big themes that reveal large struggles in American history. And we thought that was 
especially for young readers, for teen readers, but it's true for me too as an yeah. older person, to get into their lives, to dig into their biographies, and then to grapple with the real truth that they address and the, the ideas that were critical to their lives. Yeah. I meant to ask you this before when we were talking mm-hmm. about sort of the history. Do you, is there in your research and knowledge, is there a historical precedent for what we're seeing with the book bannings and the anti-critical race theories and the don't say gay bills and all of these sort of legislative actions that are to like take action against identities in this way? I mean, especially with the anti-trans bills, they're essentially saying you can't exist. Is that something that you feel like we've seen before? Or do you feel like this is different in any way? Well, it's both and, right? Yeah, we've seen, I mean, this is what America is. Right. They've been trying to ban books from the get up. They've been, right. you know, they they banned us by literally killing us. That's that's right. the ultimate banning. Right. Is that I ain't got to read your book because you ain't writing it because you did. Right. They, they've been they've been banning books and black bodies and black ideas, and they ban it by outlawing it. They ban it by calling it inferior. They tried to ban, you know, if they couldn't literally ban Phyllis Wheatley, they banned it by saying, well, you know, because the litmus test was, hey, if you could uh, master Greek. You know, mm-hmm. you you were intelligent. Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson, then she does it. Well, what had happened was <laughs> then Thomas Jefferson himself, a paradox. Here you are writing the Declaration of Independence. They took out the part where you were really critical of, you know, slavery and so on and so forth. Then again, you you own enslaved people, too. and You ain't let them go. You know, maybe upon your death or what George Washington did upon his death. But, you know, you then you you out here talking about how inferior they are in the notes on Virginia. But then you creeping out, you know, Sally Hemings, mm-hmm. right, 14 years old, getting some Luther Vandross tapes and going out there, <laughs> you know, some, some Will, Wilson Pickett Mustang Sally. You know, you you out here picking up the latest jams and spitting little Uzi Bird or something. And 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 you're claiming that these are, uh, you know, uh, unalterably uh, inferior human beings. Uh, and yet, uh, you're attracted to that which you despise mm. or condescend to or think is inferior. So, yeah, you know, the banning of books, I mean, both in regard to race, but in also in terms of ideas. Look at the McCarthyites. Look at what happened in the 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century. We've been doing this for a while. But having said that, as James Brown would say, house and ever, uh, there does appear to be, um, you know, a shift here. Because we should be, I mean, if we're repeating history, we should at least be more enlightened. Mm. Ain't we smarter now than we were two centuries ago? It doesn't appear to be. You know, because we are just as thin-skinned and reactionary and using the state power to punish vulnerable human beings. Been doing that for a minute. And now the trans folk, you know, because trans never existed in the way that they are explicitly existing now, so that in b- before, because there was the denial of their legitimacy, think about Pauli Murray, who we write about in the book. Pauli Murray was a great legal scholar, brilliant, brilliant woman who became the first, what, ordained uh, woman, female priest in, 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 a, in a church, in a denomination. Extraordinary legal mind. And because of her, Thurgood Marsh and all of them didn't want to give her her credit, but she's the one that came up with separate but unequal is a problematic, you know, idea led to Brown versus Board of Education. Even the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, said that uh, Polly Murray didn't get her due. 
Mm-hmm. And yet, and, and she wrote to, to one president, I can't remember which one. I, I need to be the woman on the Supreme Court, bro. I need to be a woman on the Supreme Court. So she had no lack of uh, wide receiver moxie <laughs> that, we, <laughs> that we see going on out there. Yo, it's me. Uh, rappers who refer to themselves in the third person. She had all that. And she felt that she was trapped in the wrong gender. Mm-hmm. She felt that this was not who she was and dressed like, quote, a man. So today she might be known as them, not her. So, so yeah, all along, you know, because the conditions were not right for the emergence of certain identities that are now permitted to exist, that now are drawn into uh, the the clear, drawn into uh, the public sphere, you know, have to contend with forces that now go against them more explicitly. So that's the new thing because we've got new formed identities newfangled identities. Black feminism is far stronger, calling out toxic masculinity and misogyny and the like is far stronger. So we have some opposition to some of this madness, but it ain't the first time we've seen it, but it is, uh, you know, it is the case that there are new formations and then to support, you know, through law and arms of government uh, these bigotries that ain't new, but it's, I mean, look at what they did in reconstruction. We got 12 years where we got to get down for a little bit. Then they snatched it all back. You know, Mitch McConnell said black people vote, uh, as much as Americans do. Wait a minute, slow down. What? What? So now it's coming out, but that's, that's a regurgitation Mm -hmm. of, you know, horribly racist ideas. So yeah, it's both new and old. It's both new because new uh, identities have been emerged and have been allowed to percolate and then therefore be born or to or to, to claim space in public. And then it's the same old, same old hatred of the other that has animated American empire from the get-go. Right. Same playbook, just different different team, essentially. Yep. No, there, there it is. There it is. Beautiful, beautifully said. Um, okay. I want to talk a little bit about the process of writing this book. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I always like to ask this when people have co-authors, how did you and Mark work together? Was there, how was the division of labor? What was the, did you use a Google doc? Like how did you guys actually get the book <laughs> together? Yeah. Well, you know, you got to figure out who's going to be LeBron and who's going to be D Wade. You know what I'm saying? Okay. In other <laughs> words, you're right. Right. They both, they were superstars when they came together. Right. Right. Uh, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, uh, Chris Bosh, Chris Bosh. <laughs> And Chris Bosch had to give up a lot of his game, right? Right. But he got two rings in exchange, right? He was a superstar in Toronto. He says, I'm going to do that. D-Wade, finally, first he and LeBron were trying to figure it out. Then D-Wade said, you the leader. I got enough of a strong ego not to be tripping. You got a kind of talent that nobody possesses. You should be the leader. We were trying to figure it out. And once they did that, they started flowing. So once I recognized that Mark Favreau was LeBron, <laughs> I could do my thing. And in terms of, you know, us coming together, obviously we're exchanging ideas, we're writing, we're thinking, we're reflecting. And, you know, given his sense as an editor, right, that's a built-in advantage when you write mm-hmm. with a guy who's also an editor, that's beautiful. But I do pretty good on the self-editing <laughs> side as well. I done wrote a few books, yeah. so I know what I'm doing as well. So we worked beautifully together, you know drafting things and I'd read and then I'd write some stuff he'd read but him you know taking that lead and then you know us working together to try to shape and talk about who we should include and why and then writing that out uh it was a it was a beautiful process uh and one that I greatly uh, enjoyed that has had immense you know benefit 
And hopefully uh, the reader will feel the same thing. Yeah. How do you like to write? How many hours a day? How often do you have music on? Do you have snacks and beverages? Are you in your home? Are you in your office? Can you sort of tell <laughs> you're, us your process? You are, you are so good. See, some people can write with music. I can't do it. I can't. Okay. See, I'm old. You young people be like writing with, you know, Snoop Dogg in the back and falling back <laughs> on that ass. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I can't keep it track. I'm like, did he say falling back on that ass? What, what? So I can't. I can't do that. I got to have complete silence. Okay. And then I write in, I write in spurts and bunches. So I'm writing and, you know, if I get going, when I get going, I'm 10 hours a day. Okay. But in the seat and banging it out, writing trash and then try to rewrite it into less trash and then write it into less, less trash until you get something decent. Okay. So uh, that's, that's been my process for 25 books. Wow. And, uh, you know, uh, and I work well under, you know, I mean, the 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 limits are important to me because I like to be clear. I'm on these right. What women? What are we doing? What are we talking about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's our ambition? Let me outline what I'm doing and then let me go at it. But I've been a Baptist preacher for 41 years as well. So it's extremely important to me to get an idea about where I'm going to map it out. So that's my way. You know, my wife brings me some food. It's like the color purple, you know, when Sugar Avery was up in there. And she was in the bedroom if you saw the movie and then uh Celia would bring her food and she'd eat it <laughs> throw that darn tree back out yeah. <laughs> I wasn't that mean but uh <laughs> you know, I've, with with her help I've been able to uh to just concentrate uh on the on the writing because okay, but what food is she important. bringing you snacks and yeah. beverages are very important to this podcast so it's important that you yeah. tell us some of your favorite snacks and beverages while writing so you know, for breakfast, you know, I want some grits. Mm. You know, sugar or no sugar? No sugar, no sugar. A little okay. butter, uh, scrambled egg sauce, some turkey bacon. Every now and again, I get some real big. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and that, or I'll get some, one day I'll get some pancakes. And then for lunch, I might have a little sandwich. And then I get some chicken. I'm a Baptist preacher. The gospel bird reigns supreme. Okay. Now you're going to get a good steak. Snacks. I might get some burners, ginger ale from Detroit, Michigan. Don't sleep on the west, uh, on the on the Midwest. Verners. Okay. Man, I had it when I had surgery when I was like five years old or something like that. Tonsils taken out six, and Verners is like magic. Y'all got to get it. And better made potato chips from Detroit. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> barbecue. Better made barbecue potato chips, bro. And then my water. I'm a snob, so I got to have some uh, aquapana. You know, to me, it's even better than Fiji. So those are some of the things that I I love this. Thank you. Thank you for indulging (laughs) me. Um, Okay. You've written, as you mentioned, 20, 25. Is this 25? Yeah, this is number 25. 25 books. Mm -hmm. How do you decide what you want to write about and how much of what you decide to write is, are you thinking about like what will sell? Does that matter to you? I mean, you've written about so many things and I'm like, how, how does, how does he choose? What is he, what are the factors right. he's thinking about? Well, no, that's a great question. I mean, you know, people can act like, no, I'm just a pure artist, man. I don't want to sell no records. I just, those people are money. liars. Yeah. Come on, dude. Come on, man. Come on. Cause once you start selling tapes out the back of your car, you in the game. Right. But why not sell a million tapes out the back of your car? Right. And not why not get distribution? And why not even if you want to maintain your independent autonomous status 
you still want to make music and sell it to people because why write it if you don't want nobody to read it? Right. So I want people to read what I write. And I've been fortunate enough to write some books that people have read. Mm-hmm. And so now the scholars get real snooty. Oh, I don't know if that is rigorous enough right. to substantiate the claim of continuing scholarship. <laughs> Bro, chill. Right. Because I'm, I'm, you know, the real mastery of something is to be able to say it in a way that people can understand because you've mastered it. Mm-hmm. Use the language. To the degree that you're able to break it down more clearly and more powerfully and more insightfully. So this, the, you know, the, the notion in the academy, unless you're saying something that don't nobody understand what you're saying, you ain't really rigorous and you're not really smart. Or if you're writing for a broad audience, I think that's more of a challenge to get as much mm-hmm. insight and intellectual ferment and reflection in as possible and to do what you got to do and to do it in a powerful enough way uh, that people see the stakes of what you're talking about. And if you're a good, if you're a good artist, if you're a good architect, if you're a good house constructioner, the joists and the seams don't show. Right. Scholarship wants to show all the seams, all the joists. It's, it's, it's powerful, but it's ugly. Like, mm-hmm. can we smooth that down? Can we put some <laughs> wallpaper up? Yeah. Can we plaster the darn thing? Why we got to see the skeletal outline? Let's put some meat on that. And right. so, you know, I'm too old. First of all, I was too old when I got a PhD to be concerned about what other scholars alone thought. Because oh. I didn't go to college until I was 21. I was a mm-hmm. teen father, hustled on the streets of Detroit, worked in factories and did everything. And then said, I got to go back to school to support my son. I was 21 years old. When most people are graduating, I was just starting. So I never was under the illusion that to get a PhD meant to satisfy other scholars and equally arcane, obtuse, obscure language. No, that ain't what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was about trying to engage human beings and to tell truths that would make a difference in the lives of ordinary American citizens or around the world, because my books have been translated in many languages. So my point is, that it's extremely important to, to, to write as brilliantly and beautifully and powerfully and poetically uh, and eloquently as you can. And at the same time, to be as rigorous and analytical as possible. Um, and so, yeah, I want people to read the books. And, you know, it's a combination. You go to your editor, hey, I'm thinking about this, that, that. Well, what, you know, you've been writing about this. What about that? Or, you know, they turn you down. You want to go to this. Oh, really? Do you really? Now, you know, you could go somewhere and insist you want to do it. But why have editors if you ain't listening to them? Why have a team if you ain't listening to them? All right, let me think about it. Let me talk about that. All right, all right, yeah. I want to write this book, but no, they didn't like it. I want to write this other book, my editor, my agent. And then, yeah, you know, and then I'm going, all right, you're right. And then sometimes they've been right. And so right. we write. Now, sometimes I come to look. I, it's the 50th uh, birthday of Jay-Z. I'm writing a book on Jay for his 50th birthday. There it is. And then they go, oh, wow, I didn't know. And then that book was a hell of a right. book or the Tupac book, or the King book on the anniversary of his fourth anniversary of his death, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I have a lot of ideas percolating up here, and I've been fortunate to find editors and book companies that are willing to uh, to join with me in partnership to create texts that make a difference in the lives of people. But hell yeah, you want to sell. You want to, I've had seven books on the New York Times bestseller list. I want eight, 10, 12, 15. Look, I want right. some more. And I want it right. to make a difference, not just because I'm interested in commercial success, because I want the biggest number of people to buy the book in order to grapple with those ideas. Okay. This question I know is illegal. Everyone's going to be like, that's rude. But what, aside from unequal, 
what of all of your books is your favorite? And you have to pick one. Don't be diplomatic. Uh, this is uh, very uh, important. One? Let me have yeah. five. Let me give you five. Okay, so I, one of them definitely has to be my book on Tupac because yeah. that introduced me to a younger audience. Like, and it, you know, if they were in the, uh, what's the, the book Bible, uh, you know, Publishers Weekly said mm. this book along with something else proved that books on hip hop could sell commercially. Mm-hmm. All right, so the Tupac book, the book on the first book on Dr. King. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a radical reinterpretation of his legacy. I put a lot of scholarship into that book, a lot of footnotes. And I, one of the greatest compliments I got was from the late, great Dorothy uh, Cotton. And she said, son, it was like you were a, you were a fly on that wall. I can mm. tell you. He said, how did you learn all of that? How did you know? All that? I was like, thank you, Jesus. Now, I caught I caught flack too, black people. Why, thanks for doing a white man's job for him because I talk about plagiarism. I talk about you know uh, outside the marriage relationships and King family didn't dig right, it right. and so, so forth. But guess what? When that stuff comes out in twenty twenty seven, I don't know. I already talked about it. It ain't yeah. nothing. And therefore, you don't have to try to cancel him, young people. Understand the complicated genius that he was, and in my mind, the greatest American ever. So, so my love for Dr. King uh, showed there. I would also, my book, Tears We Cannot Stop, because, you know, I'm trying to make a cry to white people, like, stop killing us. I mean, I'm, I'm what Beyonce was doing with the, you know, information with the video, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. tell the black lives, stop killing us. Yes! So mm-hmm. I'm trying to narrate what that looks like in that book. Police brutality, calling the N-word, so on and so forth. So that book would be one of my one of my favorites as well. And there are a few others, but those among, um, you know, many others. And my book on Jay, mm. you know, the, my th- the book on Jay, the edited collection on Nas, and the book on Pac, that's my, you know, and I've done other books on hip hop, but that, those, yeah. but those people, you know, Jay-Z, an American original, Emersonian figure, Nas, a, a brilliant poet, and, and so on. So those books that connect me uh, to the broader community. And I end by saying this, I wrote a book called Why I Love Black Women. And that was before Black Girl Magic was a thing. Mm-hmm. I ain't looking for credit, but God dang it, if you want to give it to me, I'm going to take it. <laughs> so, you know, like before that thing, I was on that love, appreciation. Right. about Kimberly Crenshaw in Critical Race Theory. Come on, mm-hmm. man. Come on. I was doing that 15, 20 years ago. So, so my point is, I was writing about you know, Angela Davis. I was writing about Asada Shakur, right? My mama, my wife. So I was writing about serious Black issues, Black women, and what they were doing. And um, I'm proud of that book in a, in a very major way. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know if you have an answer for this, but I'm just going to ask. Mm-hmm. You are a professional communicator. You're mm-hmm. a preacher, a professor, a writer. You're on TV. You used to have podcast, radio show, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you think about using your voice and how do you practice? Mm. You mean literally using your voice? Like literally using no, it metaphorically? No, I don't like, mean like link later vocal right. production. I mean like <laughs> how do you think about like honing your use of words? Because you have so many different mediums. Like how are you thinking right. about that process? Like and being specific in those different, because, you know, talking to a room full of worshipers is different than talking on CNN is different than talking to 20 year olds at Vanderbilt. Yeah, you're right. And I'm so glad you asked that 
Because some people, you know, I see on this, one of the criticisms of me on Twitter all the time is that, you know, from some people, yeah, he'd be, you know, dicing, word salad, using words. Well, I thought salad was better. I thought we were getting into the vegan era, so I didn't think the word meat was the thing. I thought word salad. It's ignorance. You would have said, would, would you have said that about Emerson or Thoreau? You know, there are different mediums, different ways. I think language is magical, and I love to experiment with it. And yes, I go to excesses and make mistakes sometimes, but it's a beautiful, dramatic uh, medium through which to articulate a variety of sometimes competing interests. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you can fall too much in love with your own voice. I understand that. But most especially, I love, you know, as you said, the difference in communicating with um, an audience full of union workers versus an audience full of worshipers uh, versus a lecture for a university setting. And I've tried to master every one of them. And I believe in the use of language. And I believe in using it in ways that harken back to ancient traditions, as well as newfangled uh, articulations. And so some of the stuff that people think is like, oh, my God, what is that? It's harkening back to the transcendentalists and reading Thoreau or Emerson or reading the Harvard classics when I was coming up and reading poetry, who's you know, woods, these are, I think I know his houses in the village, though he will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. That's before Nas, homie. I'm reading <laughs> Robert Frost. I'm reading Gray's Elegy in the Courtyard. Is that what, you know, full many a gem of purest race serene, the, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flowers born to blush unseen and waste his sweetness in the desert air. I mean, I came up on that. Or, you know, Thomas Arnold, Matthew Arnold's, you know, uh, or, you know relative. Charge once more, then end be dumb. When the forts of folly fall, find thy body by the wall. Or Ulysses. I loved all that stuff. And mm -hmm. so when I came to hip-hop, I recognized iambic pentameter. I recognized enjambment. I recognized word flow, scheme, rhythm, and the like. And I thought, oh, you just trying to make these rappers sound like they're important. No, you're just ignorant that you don't know that there's mm -hmm. some deeply instilled tradition that even if they didn't study it, their genius is they didn't even study it. They came by it naturally, organically. Mm -hmm. That's even mm -hmm. more impressive, not having studied Homer to reflect him. Right. So to me, uh, there are multiple forms of linguistic expression and articulation that I take hedonistic pleasure in. Mm. And so it's extremely important. I mean, I've been doing I've been speaking in public, you know, since I was 11 years old. And even before then, I was reciting set pieces at churches, you know, for little plays, but writing my own speeches at 11, delivering them at 12, winning speech contests, oratorical contests, writing plays, uh, winning spelling bee contests. I am obsessed with the word. I am in love with <laughs> I feel its visceral intensities, its tonal, you know, resonances, its mm. you know, elegance, its, its ruptures, its it's disagreements, it's disrespect for obtuse pedantry, as Walter Kaufman said it. So I love language. Mm. And sometimes I might mess up, but I'm going to keep on swinging for the fences because <laughs> I think it's important to do that in multiple, uh, multiple audiences. Like you said, preaching on a Sunday, lecturing on a Monday, uh, doing a, a protest march on a Tuesday uh, at a at a at a you know church setting in a synagogue uh, on a Wednesday and on and on and on. Those are the kind of things that uh, 
that that uh, make me happy. And I love uh, I love doing it with language. Okay, you've brought me to my favorite question, Mm -hmm. which is you love language. You said you've won spelling bees. So I'm very excited to ask you, what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, my God. Maybe onomatopoeia. Oh, my God. That's impossible. Wow. (laughs) But are you you're generally a good speller, though, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I I came up with that question because I was talking, you know, I've been talking to authors for years and I and I'm a terrible speller, like Mm. really, really bad. So, so you, oh, you, and King, you and King. I'm in good company. Yes, right. of course. The two greatest people of our time, myself <laughs> and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., obviously. But I came to the question thinking, I realized like not every author is a good speller, but you are one of the rare ones because I found out most people can't spell, turns oh, out. Yeah. No, no, a lot of them can't, but I, I do take pride in that. Yes, ma'am. I'm right there yeah. with it. I'm even, see, I'm up so ridiculous and don't ask your question, but I'm, even on text, I can't hold oh, that comma didn't, but no, the misspelling. No, I can't take it. I just can't oh. take it. Uh, so I'm <laughs> obsessed with that. Yes. Mm-hmm. We are very different there. Um, <laughs> okay. I know this is in the back of the book, sort of in the um, afterward. You have a list of really great books that people can check out if they're interested in more. Mm-hmm. But for people who do love this book, are there any other books you might recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with, with what you've done with Unequal or that come to mind for you? Yeah, well, some of the more recent books that, you know, that uh, Ibram Kendi and, well, they're, they're doing it for like real young readers mm-hmm. uh, or Nicole Hannah-Jones for real young readers. But, you know, we're trying to, not that there have been other, there haven't been others because there certainly are, but we're trying to really trot out a path here where we bring together the sophistication of erudition to bear upon literature for young people to make it sing to them. So we're trying to create a little new ground. We ain't claiming it's that we're the only ones or the first, but we do want to be among the best and we want to be among the most memorable. And the times in which the book emerges helps as well because it's added, you know, drama. It's added weight. It's added history to our aspiration. And uh, we're, we're very excited about that. I love that. Okay, so I'm going to do something that I ne- have never done before on the show. So I My have goodness. these conversations, like what we just had, where we talk a lot about the process. And then I sometimes have people on and we talk about their taste in books. And the mm-hmm. last question that I ask on those episodes is, if you could recommend one book to the current president, what would you want it to be? You can't say your own book. No, The Fire Next Time, James Baldwin. Okay. Always my first okay. recommendation. I mean, okay. that book is so powerful to this day. Yeah. Beautifully written, powerfully articulated, grappling with white innocence, the refusal of whiteness to come to grips with what it means, and yet the redemptive possibility of black love. Mm. Uh, but the anger and the hurt and the pain and the grief all there on that page, bled on by the great James Baldwin. Okay. I had I just had to ask you because I was like, how many times am I gonna get to talk to Dyson? <laughs> All the time. Okay. Just call me. Me and you pen pals now. Me and you are pen pals now. I love this for me. Um okay. If this is the last one, the real last one. If you could have one person dead or alive read unequal, who would you want it to be? Oh my lord. Oh yes, my lord. Uh, <laughs> besides Jesus, Martin Luther King. Because okay. I admire, admire him so much as the greatest American to ever have lived. To me, right? Uh, he didn't have a presidency to protect him. He had no bodyguards. He didn't have a constitution or a declaration of independence that 
named him as its beneficiary, and yet he he worked and willed America into position, not by himself. You know, uh, Ella Baker, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, Joanne Robinson, Rosa Parks, and like, but he is the shining symbol of that possibility. And I would love uh, for him to read it. Mm, I love that so much. All right, everybody. Unequal. It is out now when you're listening. And you can get it wherever you got your books. And I just want to say, I don't typically read a lot of YA. Mm -hmm. And I do love nonfiction. And I do love history. And even for me, I was really impressed with the book. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot. There were a lot of new names in the book for me. There was a lot of new or detailed history that I didn't know. Maybe I knew the event more broadly, but I hadn't thought about it in that way. Like there's this great part where you guys are talking about mass incarceration and hip hop and, and the articulation that rappers were sort of the first reporters of what was going on with police mm -hmm. brutality. Like I had never sort of made that connection in my mind. So there's a lot of nuggets in this book, not only for young people, and it would be a really cool book, I think, to read if you are a parent of a teenager with your teenager because I think there's mm -hmm. a lot to talk about and there's a lot of googling you could do and like <laughs> they're just so it's so rich and it's like it invites so much conversation um, so thank you for writing it please tell Mark as well thank you mm -hmm. for writing it and thank you for being here today thank you so much you're so smart you're so sharp you're so insightful so wise uh, at such a young age and uh, we appreciate uh, you're engaging us and thanking you for taking this book seriously. And thank you for those kind words. We deeply appreciate it. Thank you for calling me young. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else, I will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Dyson again for being my guest and to Christina Pistiota for helping to coordinate this interview. As a reminder, the Stacks Book Club pick for June is White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation by Lauren Michelle Jackson. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, June 29th with David Dennis Jr. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. And make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram, at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of the Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>